The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And then would you speak through your word for the edification and the building up and the encouragement of your people. Get glory for yourself this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you could know how the world ends, would you want to find out? Think about that for a moment. If you could know how the world would end, would you want to find out? Our culture is fascinated with how the world is going to end. The entertainment industry capitalizes on our obsession with it, movie after movie. Maybe it'll end through nuclear war or a huge asteroid hurtling towards Earth, or maybe an earthquake of global proportions, or now we would say climate change. Maybe aliens, or mutants, or artificial intelligence, or robots, or maybe even a deadly global pandemic, which hits a little too close to home. If you could know how it all ends, would you want to find out this morning? My guess is most of us would, because knowing the end of the story shapes how we experience and live and think about the present. Knowing how the story ends shapes how we live in the present. And this is precisely why the latter half of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, is so intensely relevant for us this morning. Daniel 1 through 6 had some of the most memorable stories that we get in the Bible. Daniel and the lion's den, the fiery furnace. And yet Daniel 7 through 12 has often confounded and confused preachers and Christians alike. Every time people found out we were going to do Daniel, people would say, are you going to do the whole thing? Thinking that we would skip the latter half. Some find these chapters too frightening, too confusing, or too controversial. I think it will uh, create some of the best drawings from our children this morning, perhaps. (laughs) Many a preacher has come to these chapters of Daniel and felt like Daniel in verse 15 of chapter 7. My spirit within me was anxious and my head alarmed me. But here at Bethlehem, we believe that all scripture... All scripture is breathed out by God. And that what was written in former days was written for our instruction so that we might have hope. So this morning, this sermon is aimed at your hope. You may not understand every single piece of it. We may not answer every single question. But I firmly believe that Daniel chapter 7 verses 1 through 18 is aimed so that we might leave here with more hope rising up in our hearts than when we came in. Now, Daniel 7 through 12 reassures God's people, Daniel's readers, that God is in control of all of human history, including the future. And it does this through apocalyptic literature. Now, this is what we might call predictive prophecy that uses highly symbolized language. So 
apocalyptic literature helps us see God's power and his sovereignty over the future. And it often has symbolic language that talks about the inbreaking of God's kingdom. So it's less about our end time charts, but more about reassuring God's people in the midst of everything going on around them that God has the future that he's in control, that he's still sovereign. You've heard that throughout our series in Daniel. We've said it week after week. God is in control. He's sovereign. He's ruling over it all. For the children this morning, apocalyptic literature uses interesting imagery, symbols to remind us that God is the one who holds the whole world, including the future, in his hands. And so if your parents get anxious as they see the wars and the rising gas prices and inflation, you can remind them that God is the one who holds the whole world in his hands. Now, Daniel 7 is probably the most important chapter in the entire book of Daniel. Actually, one commentator says it might be the most important chapter of the entire Old Testament. Those are big words. Chapter 7 serves as a bridge between the narrative portions of chapters 1 through 6 and then chapters 7 through 12. And we know this because chapters 2 through 7 of Daniel are written in Aramaic. If you have an ESV Bible, a paper ESV Bible, you can see actually a footnote in back in chapter 2 of verse 4. That there's a little footnote down there that from 2 through 7, it's all written in Aramaic. And the reason for this is I think chapters 2 through 7 are all paired off in parallel chapters. We'll see that further later. But maybe let's just ask this question. What's the relationship between chapters 1 through 6 and chapters 7 through 12? 7 through 12 because often people see them as totally disconnected. We get great stories of Daniel and his friends in these first six chapters. And then these latter six chapters, we have no idea what's going on. We just get all these crazy visions. Well, I think it's this. Daniel 1 through 6 is establishing Daniel's credentials and God's credentials for what comes in chapters 7 through 12. If God is able to give Daniel wisdom to tell Nebuchadnezzar's dream, to even interpret it, and to deliver him and his friends from sure and certain death, and even humble kings and kingdoms, then surely this God is in control of the future and can even foretell it. A lot of liberal and secular commentators will say, oh, he wrote it all after it happened. That's why it's so accurate. And we would say, no, no, no. This is the God of the universe. Daniel is not crazy in seeing these visions. He's not hallucinating. He hasn't been smoking anything funny. He sees what God is showing him, and he writes it down for our benefit. And so the whole point is that God's sovereignty isn't just limited to the present, but extends out into the future as well. So what's the setting or situation of Daniel chapter 7? Well, Daniel's readers, just like us, see evil and wickedness in their day. And they're wondering, is God still in control? Is God still powerful? Is God still good? Because I'm looking around and it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't look like it. Is God still in control? Or perhaps to put that question a different way, does good eventually triumph over evil? That's what they're wondering. Does good 
triumph over evil at the very end. And Daniel 7 reassures us and it reassures every reader of this book, past, present, and future, that it's not just good that triumphs over evil, but it's God who triumphs over evil in those last days. That in the midst of violent and powerful and wicked kingdoms, God is going to decisively come as the judge He will tear down and destroy every evil and wicked kingdom. And then he will establish his worldwide kingdom, his universal kingdom, his everlasting kingdom. And he will give it to his son, Jesus, and to his saints forever and ever. That's what Daniel 7 tells us this morning. So the Bible doesn't minimize evil and suffering. It's not some fairy tale, but it actually is addressing the wickedness in our world with his unfolding plan to deal with the curse of sin and the schemes of Satan. So our passage this morning gives us the glimpse. We get the curtain pulled back and we get a glimpse of this epic story of the decisive defeat of depravity through the divine one, through the eyes of Daniel. And Daniel was written very simply, this, this chapter, to encourage and strengthen and reassure his saints. God is seated on his throne. Do not fear the raging of the wicked. So look with me at Daniel. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18 this week, and we'll look at the latter half of the chapter next week. Now, Daniel 1 through 6 unfolded in chronological order, if you'll notice and remember. The fall of Jerusalem, the exile of God's people in chapter 1, then God's sovereignty over Nebuchadnezzar in chapters 2 through 4, and then Daniel, uh, the humbling and the fall of King Belshazzar, and then Daniel delivered from the lion's den in chapter 6 from King Darius. Daniel 7 rewinds all the way back between chapters 4 and 5 because we see in verse 1 of chapter 7 that it took place in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So Daniel sees this dream. So this is the king who sees the handwriting on the wall, but it's before that particular event. And as you heard Daniel 7 read, these first 18 verses, hopefully it sounded familiar because it's a parallel with Daniel chapter 2. Just like chapters 4 and 5, the fall of kind of the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar and the humbling of Belshazzar in chapters 3 and 6, that God delivers Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and he delivers Daniel from the lion's den, and chapters 2 and 7 are also parallel, describing these four kingdoms. But the difference between the two visions is that chapter 2 told it from man's human perspective. Look at all these four kingdoms, the head of gold, the shoulders of silver, and then bronze, and then clay and iron. And it was highlighting its power and its glory. But here in Daniel 7, we get it from God's perspective. These four kingdoms are portrayed as beasts. And these beasts are evil and wicked. So... Verse 2 says, I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea. For ancient Israelites, the picture of the sea would have been that of disorder and chaos. And so for these beasts to come out of the sea, they're hostile, and it symbolizes wickedness and evil. And we notice in verse 3 that they're all different from one another, each one with its unique features. Just like we would do here in America, we would say our national bird is what? 
Bald eagle, what's our national animal? Anyone know? It's the bison. It was enacted by Barack Obama, I think, in 2016. So it's fairly recent. But we have our kind of national animals, our national birds. Lots of kingdoms do, lots of countries do. And here, these four kingdoms are symbolized not by singular animals, but by mutant or hybrid beasts. And this is a clue that these nations are disordered and represent wicked kingdoms. Now, it's just good to know that kings and kingdoms is often used interchangeably in these latter chapters. Now, verse 4, we see this first beast. The first beast is the Babylonian Empire. Described as a lion with eagle's wings, this lion is clearly the king of all the animals. And we know back from Daniel 2, as well as later in the interpretation, that this is Babylon. This first beast is Babylon. And and often Nebuchadnezzar was actually even likened with uh, a lion. Jeremiah 50, verse 17, hear what it says. Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First the king of Assyria devoured him, and now at last Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. So there's this picture of Babylonian power signified by this lion with wings. And And if you remember, if you've studied ancient history, you know that a winged lion often decorated the streets of Babylon and even the Ishtar Gate. And then we get this picture in the latter half of verse 4, where its wings were plucked off and then it was made to stand like a man and it was given the mind of a man. And and, and if we've been studying Daniel, we we know echoes of Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar was made to be like a wild animal and now afterwards he was restored and made to be like a man, restored to his right mind. Now the second beast in verse 5 is the Medo Persian Empire. This is a bear with one raised side, and many understand this to be the Persian Empire being a little bit stronger than the Median Empire. And then it had three ribs in its mouth that represent the devouring of other nations and empires. And as people have looked throughout history, the Medo Persian Empire Kong conquered Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. And at the end of verse 5, it says, Arise, devour much flesh. So this picture is of this kingdom controlling more than any other kingdom for that time. This kingdom is further described and identified in Daniel 8, which we'll see in two weeks. The third beast in verse 6 is the Greek empire, described as a leopard with four wings. And so what's a leopard known for? being fast. And with four wings, it's even faster. And many come to understand this as Alexander the Great of Macedonia, who conquered the world. And it indicates that within 10 years, by age 32, the entire Medo-Persian Empire was conquered all the way to the borders of India. This beast has four heads, which likely suggests, as we've looked back in history, that Alexander the Great eventually fell, and there was a lot of fighting. There were the wars of succession to see who would take over, and eventually it was four of his generals that ended up ruling each section of the kingdom. This kingdom is also described later in chapter 8 as a goat with a singular horn that breaks into four smaller horns. And then we come to the fourth beast which is Rome. This was a beast unlike all the others, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. 
a beast unlike anything in the animal kingdom. And we see the parallel with Daniel chapter 2 because it had iron teeth that crushed and devoured everything. And we remember from Daniel 2 that this kingdom also was made of iron. And many understand this to be Rome, the Roman legions that conquered lands with unparalleled brutality. And out of this kingdom, ten horns would arise, and many take this number ten to signify the number of fullness. And then there would eventually be another horn, verse 8, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. This horn would have eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great and glorious things. And we'll see more about this particular horn next week. But it's just important to note here that this little horn will rise up with unusual power and uproot three other kings. Now, it's just helpful for us to understand how this imagery is being used. I think Daniel 2 Daniel 7 and 8, and then Daniel 10 through 12 are all describing complementary realities. That all four of these wicked and evil kings and kingdoms are, are describing real realities, and yet they're also prophetic patterns of future kingdoms that will oppose God and his people. And we'll talk more about that next week. But let's just notice and zoom in to verses 9 to 11 here. Daniel ponders these four beasts, and he's interrupted by another scene that unfolds before him, the reigning of the Ancient of Days. Now, if you have a paper Bible, it's funny that I have to mention paper, but you you get it. You can see that verses 9 and 10 are laid out like poetry, not just in sort of normal narrative. Why do you think that is? The same is true of verses 13 and 14. I think it's this. That Daniel is getting a peek into amazing heavenly realities. And the way that they would convey that is through poetry. It's a little bit like if we were watching a movie and we were given into a dream sequence, there would be some sort of visual filter. If it's getting to a really important part in the story, the Hans Zimmer soundtrack would start to rise where you hear the bagpipes or, or the orchestra. And you would get a sense that this is really, really important that we're coming to. And I think that's what Daniel is trying to show us. And he says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. Here we get this glimpse where the curtain is pulled back and God the Father is seated on his throne. His clothing was white as snow. This is signifying his moral purity and perfection. His hair on his head was like pure wool. He has no beginning. He has no end. It's signifying that he is eternal. And his throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. The picture here of God the Father is not just any picture, but it's the picture of him coming as a judge that is going to judge. It's the same image that we get in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10, or this flaming chariot throne we saw as Elijah was taken up into heaven. It's symbolizing that God is coming to pour out his wrath and judgment upon the wicked. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. That confirms our suspicion. And then it says a thousand thousands served him. And I think these are angels that are standing before the throne of God. And then 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. I think this is pointing to 
the people of God. Now, one commentator says it's the square of the highest number for which ancient peoples had a word. It would be like us saying a trillion times a trillion because no one uses quadrillion and all the other kind of names afterwards. And then he says, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. The books symbolize all the deeds and words and thoughts of every person who had ever done anything on the face of the earth. We see that in Revelation 20, verse 12, where John writes, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So the picture here is that of God the Father coming down on his flaming chariot to enact judgment upon these wicked kingdoms and upon all flesh. And the books are opened before him. This God of heaven that we saw in Daniel 2, that would establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that will break in pieces all the other kingdoms. We get a detailed image of that now where he's coming. And the way that he's going to smash all of these other kingdoms is that he's going to judge them according to their deeds. Every individual, every wicked kingdom will be judged. And then we see in verse 11 and 12, I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. This is the little horn in the fourth beast. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So each of these subsequent beasts, they were allowed to, I think, be absorbed into the beast that would come afterwards. And finally, the fourth beast would be burned with fire. This suggests that God is coming to tear down and destroy every wicked and evil kingdom. We'll we'll talk more about what that little beast is and who that little beast is. But let's just keep moving for now and look at verses 13 and 14. Daniel continues describing the vision that he sees. I saw in the night visions, and we see 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, we can notice a number of things from this passage. The latter half of it has been repeated again and again throughout the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar confessed these same realities, that there is coming. God is going to establish his everlasting kingdom and establish a dominion that will never end. But what we see that is unique here is in verse 13, that there is one like a son of man. This could be translated very literally as one like a human being. And it's not immediately obvious that this is someone special until we see that he rides in on the clouds, suggesting that he's a divine being. This is often what the Psalms will portray, someone who rides in on the clouds. So there's this contrast. We see out of the earth or out of the sea, out of chaos, these four beasts come up. And yet riding in on the clouds from heaven, there's one that is like a man, the son of man. Where the beasts come out of disorder, the son of man comes out of 
order and from the heavens. And this individual will be given an everlasting kingdom as the ancient of days destroys the wicked. There's all of these different pictures at work, just like in Genesis, where all dominion was given to man. Be fruitful and multiply. But what was it that caused the fall? A beast. And yet now there comes a son of man who is going to crush the serpent's head. This son of man is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, the Davidic King. While Daniel's audience probably did not know the identity of this Son of Man, we can see from the unfolding of redemptive history that it is clearly, unmistakably, Jesus who has been given all authority, power, glory, and dominion forever. Where the beasts take power for themselves to use it the way that they would like, Jesus doesn't grasp at power. He's given power by the ancient of days. He's given all authority, all dominion. Jesus used the title Son of Man probably more than any other title in the gospel accounts. And I believe that he's explicitly referring back to Daniel 7, 13 every single time he uses it. And originally I was going to read out about 10 different passages where Jesus uses that title, but there was just too many to choose from, so I picked one. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Jesus is put on trial. We're going to be in verses 60 and 61 and 62. Jesus is being put on trial. You see in verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Because Jesus has said, I'm going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. And they're like, you're crazy. But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, this is verse 61, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Here is a pointed, direct question to Jesus. Are you the Messiah? Are you the chosen one? And what does Jesus say? He says, I am. That's not just our normal I am. This is hearkening back to when Moses says to God, who should I say sent me? And he says, tell them I am has sent you. Jesus saying, I am. I'm the eternal one, the ancient of days. I am God Almighty. And you will see, this is continuing in verse 62, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And what did the high priest do? It says, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. The high priest knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, you will see the son of man riding in on the clouds and is being seated at the right hand of power. That Jesus was saying, I am this Daniel seven thirteen ancient uh, or son of man that is given over to the kingdom by the ancient of days. Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms, I am God. Surprisingly, Daniel is unable to interpret his own vision. He's been given wisdom and insight, and he's not able to interpret it. And so we we move on to the vision being interpreted in 15 to 18. 
And verse 15 says, My spirit within me was anxious. The visions of my head alarmed me. He goes up to one nearby, probably one of the angels, and he asks for the interpretation in verse 16. And in verse 17, we read, These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So this interpretation confirms what we saw as a parallel in Daniel chapter 2. This vision reminds Daniel that God has not forgotten what he has said. But what's unique about this vision is that in verse 18, that the saints of the Most High will receive this kingdom. So we need to take note of that this morning. It's not only that God is coming to judge all the wicked kingdoms, all the wicked people, and then he's going to give all authority and power to King Jesus. That is happening. It's good to know the end of the story. But part of that story is that all of those who walk by faith and not by sight are his faithful saints that will not only be vindicated, not only be raised from the dead, but that we will be seated with Jesus on these thrones. We will rule and reign with King Jesus forever and ever and ever. And if ever we were tempted to doubt our futures, you need to see where we're headed. If you're trusting in Jesus, you have nothing to fear. Not in this life, not in the one to come. There is no evil kingdom that is too great for God's people. We will stand fast, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord because we will be given over this everlasting kingdom with King Jesus forever and ever. What we see in Daniel 7 is not that good overcomes evil in some generic, nondescript way. What we see in this passage is that God himself will come down to triumph over evil with all of his power, So evil runs rampant. The wicked crush the weak and devour the righteous. So we can watch the news and you see bombings of maternity hospitals and art schools in Ukraine and hundreds die. And we think, how long, O Lord, will that go unpunished? Maybe in this life, we don't know, but not in the life to come. God will gloriously and decisively triumph over every evil that in the midst of the wickedness that appears to flourish all around us, we do not lose heart. When kingdoms rise up one after another, that's what Daniel and his friends were seeing, that even after Nebuchadnezzar, now Belshazzar is back in place, and he's just, he's more evil than Nebuchadnezzar. What gives? Where is God? Is he not just? Is he not powerful? Is he working? And what we're reminded is that the most high God, the ancient of days, the alpha and the omega, the Lord almighty, the everlasting father has come and he will judge every wicked deed. He will destroy every evil kingdom and his kingdom he will give to his son and to his saints forever. Now, most of us don't think of ourselves as wicked beasts or wicked kings. But Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 19, 
that the light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so Jesus is telling us in the Gospel of John that there's only two ways to live. You are either in the kingdom of Christ or you are a participant. You are dwelling in the kingdom of darkness. There are only two ways. If you do not worship and follow King Jesus, you are a knowing or unknowing participant with the kingdom of darkness. And when judgment comes, when the books are opened, if you're not trusting in Jesus, you may not say, well, I'm not as evil as those wicked kingdoms. I'm not crushing anyone with teeth of iron. And yet, if you're not part of King Jesus' rule and reign and dominion and kingdom, you will stand in the judgment. And what will you say when the charges are read out? Can you imagine what the books lay out for each one of us? I took a stab at it, not any of you specifically. 536 counts of gossip, 1,056 counts of unrighteous anger, 2,880 counts of lustful desire, 5,346 counts of despondency, 550 million counts of breath that you failed to thank God for, 3 billion beats of the heart that we did not say thank you for. And what will we do in that day when all those counts are read out? For the people of God, we will say, thank you for the blood of Jesus who washes away my sins. Rest in that glorious reality this morning. We are washed by the blood of Jesus and we love him, we treasure him, not because he's gonna make us great, but because he is great and he has loved us with an infinite, glorious, self-sacrificing love. And for all those who are not trusting in Jesus this morning, we call you to repent and receive Jesus as Lord. What will you do when those charges are read out? Will you say, well, it wasn't as bad as the guy next to me? We'll talk about this further in the coming weeks, but Daniel reveals that we live in an already and not yet kingdom. The fall of Rome took place during the first advent of Jesus, but will not be fully consummated until his return. So the kingdom of God has begun, and yet there is still more to come. And so Daniel 7 calls us to trust God's wise, sovereign, and perfect unfolding plan for human history. Even today, we can look at the news headlines and say, the Ancient of Days is seated on his throne. He rules and reigns on high. Jesus came not only as a prophet, who would announce the coming of the kingdom of God. Not only did he come as a priest who would mediate between God and man as the lamb of God who would provide the sacrifice that was needed, but Jesus comes as the king, the prophet, priest, and king. And he is the one who is given all dominion, all authority, so that he rules and reigns. And so this morning, we're not used to worshiping kings here in America. And yet worship this king. Marvel and stand in awe of King Jesus. Our deep human longing is to know that good will triumph over evil. Is it not? 
We, we all have that deep longing in our hearts. That's why we love movies and, and books sometimes that just show that in the end, good triumphs over evil. We, we don't like a, a Star Wars universe where Darth Vader ultimately wins. Or, or we don't want books where the ruthless Moriarty ultimately outsmarts Sherlock and kills him. Or, or the spell of the white witch just goes on forever and ever and Aslan stays dead. Or that Sauron is victorious in the end. Or that Thanos' destruction of half the population of the universe is the last note of the series and franchise. No. We love to know that good ultimately triumphs over evil. It's written into every human heart, and yet it's pointing to a greater reality, is it not? That what we really need to be reminded of this morning is not that good generally in a nondescript, generic way overcomes evil, but that God himself will come down, call to account every single wicked kingdom, and then he will judge. He will destroy all those who hold the fist, refuse to bow the knee before him. And then he will redeem all of his saints. He will give all dominion, all authority to his son, Jesus, and we will reign with him forever and ever and ever. The glory of Christ is here and it's coming. The reign of Jesus is here and it's coming. Are we ready for King Jesus to return? Let's pray. Father, may our hope rise this morning, seeing your power, your glory at work in your word so that we would be those who are ready for your return. Encourage us this morning so that we would be those who know that you are in control of the entire world and that you rule and reign for the glory of Christ, for the good of your people, and for your everlasting kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.